You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. July 23rd, 2020. It's opening night at Nationals Park in Washington, D.C., four months later than usual. It is baseball time. The New York Yankees versus the Washington Nationals. A Black Lives Matter video plays on the Jumbotron. Today, we are one. The players take a knee for about 20 seconds before a pre-recorded rendition of the national anthem plays. Dr. Anthony Fauci throws the ceremonial first pitch. Throwing out the first pitch, and it was just a bit outside. Uh, It was a little wide, but that's okay. We don't need the good doctor also being good at baseball. And the players take the field. But something else is different about this year's opening game. The stadium seats are empty. Empty stadiums, socially distanced dugouts, and... The only fans allowed are these cardboard cutouts placed in the seats behind home plate so they can be seen on the TV broadcast. Crowd noise piped in. All the sounds are eerily amplified. The pop of the ball hitting leather gloves, the crack of the bats. But we will not complain because baseball is back and live sports are back. Pro sports are back in a drastically new way. So are their plans to play and avoid getting a bunch of players sick working? Plus, we take a look at the amateur sport that's developed a long-term plan that honestly kind of rocks. That's today on the show. I'm Ariel Zermross. This is Reset. Zach Binney is an epidemiologist at Oxford College of Emory University. Last time we had him on Reset back in May, he told us all about the plan Major League Baseball developed to start back up again. Yes. So what made Major League Baseball different from many other leagues in the U.S. that are trying to come back is they were trying to have their players and staff live at home with their families in their communities as opposed to trying to establish a bubble as the National Women's Soccer League, Major League Soccer, the NBA and the WNBA, as well as the NHL, all tried to do. So the idea, I think, that we called it in the last episode a testing league as opposed to a bubble league. Does that name still hold? Yes. Yes, it does. I would say that there were two main approaches that every league was taking one of the two. One is a bubble, putting everybody in a bubble where there would not be any contact between those inside the league and those outside the league in the broader community. So you stop the disease from getting in that way. And the other method was a testing league where you admit that cases are going to get in from the community on occasion, but you are going to test frequently enough and importantly with fast enough turnaround to be able to uh, cut any transmission chains before those individual cases turn into outbreaks. Okay. So 
MLB opted against a bubble league. They're doing a testing league instead. And a few weeks ago, baseball had its opening game. So what's happened since? Well, even before their opening game, by the way, they were having a couple of weeks of what they call summer camp or sort of like spring training just pushed into July. And, you know, through that summer camp period, everything seemed to be going smoothly. But then a few days after games started, four players in the Miami Marlins have tested positive for COVID-19. You saw a major outbreak on the Miami Marlins. The Marlins restarted practices at Marlins Park on Friday, their first workout since the pandemic began. You know, a few days later are up to nearly half their roster uh, testing positive for COVID-19. So it moved through their team very, very quickly. Was that surprising to you? Yeah, the speed with which it moved through really was surprising to me because Major League Baseball had created a 113-page protocol with a lot of focus on how to structure uh, locker rooms and clubhouses and how to physically distance in dugouts and how you have to wear masks and all of the uh, behaviors that you're supposed to engage or not engage in away from the field. And all of this was really supposed to reduce the risk of something exactly like what we saw on the Marlins happening. And so unfortunately, that seems to have failed. You know, I was certainly surprised. So how did Major League Baseball respond to receiving all these positive tests from players on the Marlins team? Uh, not very well. It started with uh, when they had four cases on the Marlins. Uh, they still let them play the Phillies in Philadelphia. And that was really a pretty unconscionable move as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when you see four cases in a few days, you, you have to assume that you have an outbreak and that everybody on that team could be potentially infected. And so to gather together for another game, and, you know, potentially put the Phillies at risk, but more to the point, put your team, your people back together in the clubhouse, in the dugout to put them at risk was really an unwise move. They, they should have suspended the Marlins when they had four cases. Instead, they only did it when they got a whole bunch more, which was late. OK, so they didn't stop that game when four players had tested positive. What happened when more players started testing positive? Well, once more players started testing positive, they did finally suspend both the Marlins and the Phillies uh, for a period of time. But at this point, you, you basically, particularly for the Marlins, have to give the virus time to work its way out of the clubhouse and, and choose an appropriate amount of time where uh, you will no longer be concerned that anybody on the Marlins is likely to continue to get infected. Right. So I'm wondering, Zach, in your opinion, like how should Major League Baseball deal with this moving forward? Do they need to completely rethink their plan or can they move ahead and keep holding games provided that players don't test positive? Well, certainly it was discouraging that Major League Baseball seemed so unprepared for what to do when this happened. They should have known, in particular playing outside of a bubble, that they were playing with fire and that you would have expected an outbreak, perhaps not this extreme, but an outbreak nonetheless. You should have expected and, and had a plan in place that you could have activated very quickly. MLB has now seen potential outbreaks on multiple teams, so they're definitely going to need a more solid plan for what to do and for how long to suspend team operations under what circumstances uh, moving forward. I'm wondering, what about other professional team sports in the U.S.? How's basketball doing with this? The WNBA and the NBA have started back up again, right? So how's that going? 
Well, if you scan over sort of what all the other team sports in the U.S. are doing and around the world, really, you see a pattern emerging. So you see that bubbles work. The National Women's Soccer League ran a bubble, no positive tests. Major League Soccer had some speed bumps at the start, but once they got their bubble started, they're good. NBA and WNBA, despite holding their bubble like uh, Major League Soccer in an area with a lot of cases in Orlando, have so far looked quite good. Uh, And the NHL in Canada is also off to a solid start. So you're seeing that bubble plans work. You're also seeing that non-bubble plans work in many areas, including Spain and Italy, where they were able to finish off uh, their top soccer league seasons, despite um, having a very, very rough start uh, to the outbreak. They've they've more or less gotten COVID-19 under control now. But when you come back outside a bubble here in the U.S., you've seen uh, outbreaks on teams in Major League Baseball, uh, and you also saw outbreaks in Major League Soccer uh, in Dallas and Nashville. So you've now seen this be a problem multiple times with the level of virus we have here in the U.S. And you start putting two and two and two together, and, and you start to think maybe bubbles are the only way to have professional sports safely here in the U.S. Okay. So one of the bubbles that's gotten the most attention in the U.S. is the NBA. Can you describe what they've done? Sure. So the NBA uh, invited 22 teams to a single area. The NBA is back. The first games were held last night in the so-called protective bubble at Disney World in Florida. Disney World in Orlando. They are staying in a series of hotels Everybody in the bubble is not having face-to-face close contact, which we think is the main way that COVID-19 spreads with people who are outside of the bubble. People in the bubble are also being tested uh, very frequently with very fast turnaround. If anybody needs to leave the bubble, you can for an excused reason, but you have to get tested daily and uh, you still have to re-enter the bubble very carefully uh, with a little bit of an enhanced procedure. If you leave the bubble for an unexcused reason, uh, it's even harder to get back. So there is some punishment for that. And the NBA is monitoring that very, very carefully and have already uh, identified at least uh, one instance where that happened and have dealt with it appropriately in my mind. So uh, we should actually talk about that. I think what you're alluding to is Lou Williams of the L.A. Clippers, right, who was recently photographed at a strip club in Atlanta after being given permission to leave the bubble to attend a funeral. Williams told NBA security he went to the Magic City strip club in Atlanta to grab dinner after a viewing for the father of a close friend who had passed. That seemed problematic to me at the time. What does that tell you about the outlook of the NBA bubble if already something like this has happened? Well, uh, it tells me that any bubble, any plan really depends on people adhering to the protocols that are laid out. And if they don't, that that can cause a problem and that you need to be prepared for that eventuality. Fortunately to me, it looks like the NBA was very well prepared, took the appropriate steps, identified the problem. They've set up uh, methods for reporting uh, issues like this, and they took appropriate careful steps. So do you think the NBA bubble is working? Do you think it's going to work? I do. I think it's working. I think you can't look at the basic absence of positive tests and think that it's not working. It's easy for me to sit here as a public health professional and say, bubble, 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 right? That's that's easy. Bubbles are expensive. 
They're logistically difficult, and they are more to the point for players and staff. It can take them away from their families for weeks or months at a time. This is not an emotionally or psychologically pleasant experience. This is a pretty big sacrifice that you're asking everyone uh, who's entering the bubble to make. So there really are no good answers. And and my opinion has always been, if you're able to bring sports back in the U.S. right now, it's, it's going to be more difficult, more expensive, and more dangerous. Is there a sport right now that's doing this right in the U.S. without going to the extremes of a bubble league? Yes. So one that I specifically want to point out is the WFTDA, which is the governing body that oversees roller derby. Roller derby. So what exactly is roller derby's plan? We take a look at it and explain why it might actually be an epidemiologist's dream. That's after the break. This is Reset. There's a feeling about it. There's a feeling about being on wheels that is exciting. You're going faster than you normally would when you're taking you know, regular human steps. And then you add the idea of enacting a contact sport on top of that. And there's nothing else like it that I've encountered. It's intense, energetic, and absolutely the most dynamic sports experience that you've ever been to. This is Erica Vanstone. She plays roller derby. Flat track roller derby is a high scoring game played on quad roller skates. Skaters have the playing surface of a large oval and each team fields up to five players, four blockers and one jammer. Star two comes up against V Diva, falls down, but still on the track assessed lead jammer. The jammer are the point scorers for the team. And the point of roller derby is to have your jammer pass uh, opponents as many times as they possibly can within an increment of time called a jam. And so it's a, a very high point scoring game, a lot of physicality. I've heard it referred to as rugby on skates. And I think that that is a very apt description. Erica is also the executive director for the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. We have over 450 member leagues or what other sports might call clubs uh, around the world. And this is 23 countries that the WFTDA operates in. When the news about coronavirus started, what did you decide to do with the various leagues? As a contact sport, I knew pretty early on that this was going to bring probably everything to a screeching halt. Roller derby is not just about breathing next to a person. You know, when you are in the middle of a pack, you are sweating on someone. Your face is pressed up against their body parts sometimes. There's not any way to escape exchange of respiratory fluids or sweat. So in early April, we decided, you know, we are going to cancel our tournament structure for the year because we would like to de-emphasize competition and really have everybody focus on health and safety. 
All right, so games basically stopped, right? So can you describe the plan you came up with to start roller derby back up again? Why does Zach Binney, an epidemiologist, think your plan is so good? So we got information in from all over the world, and we we knew that conditions were so wildly different that we were going to have to create something that was flexible. And what we needed help with in particular was the science and the medicine behind a lot of the questions that we had, like the baseline conditions, how much COVID was too much COVID, and what was just too much risk. And early on, I, I had this vision of a ladder. So the idea that we could have something where people could step on, try to come back, see if they could follow the regulations, then if infections were rising, they could step back down from it. And we knew that we wanted to have um, increments of increase because when we were developing the plan, we were also in the midst of the government thinking about, quote unquote, reopening. And my problem with all of that was that I, there was never a plan to backtrack. There was never a plan to step down. And I think that is what has been missing from a lot of sports, a lot of government policy, is that there's really no ramp down. Um, it's just open the floodgates and see what happens. And so we knew right away that that had to be a part of the plan. So we have a seven-tier system. So baseline conditions really helps you to figure out if you are in a place where we think you might be able to start getting back on track. The tier one is really a return with no contact. You're just skating around in that oval. In tier two, you can start contact drills. In tier three, you can have contained scrimmages and full contact, and it goes all the way up to tier seven. And tier seven, in our mind, is roller derby as we knew it in 2019. There's audiences, there's officials, there's family members. Just yet, as Scarts, who already has picked up four points. But the caveat to that is that we don't really think that we're going to be able to achieve that until there are widespread therapeutics, a vaccine available, international travel uh, available again. So we're very realistic about the fact that this is going to be a very long road and the space between tier three and tier seven could be very, very long. Just to be clear, what you're suggesting is based on what's going on in the general population surrounding a city, for instance, or a specific region, Teams get to move up the ladder. So if things are going well in their region, they get to go up to tier three, maybe tier four. And that's great. And they get to actually have a little bit of contact. But if things go badly and the number of cases of coronavirus in that region goes up, then they have to go back down the ladder. Right. That's what you're talking about. Correct. So what's the highest tier that teams around the world have been able to reach so far under this plan? Tier four, um, and I believe Denmark and New Zealand are the two areas where we have clubs who are back to tier four. And what does tier four mean again? Interleague gameplay within your region. You can think about not just having a scrimmage in your own warehouse with your own members. You can think about an area next to you that also has to be at the exact same level And you can think about um, getting together with your neighbors, for example, to play a scrimmage. 
How does it make you feel that you're already acknowledging that tier seven, the one where things feel like they used to, it might be like years away, potentially? Like, how does that make you feel? I think early on, it made me feel sad. Um, And certainly, I miss the excitement and the fanfare of our tournament season, which would be starting this month in August. I miss that a lot. But I don't miss that more than I care about the lives of my community members. And I know that that sounds so radical to say right now. But I think we're trying to see this as an opportunity. And we're really stepping forward on a number of things that we've been dragging our feet on, you know, including um, racial equity and making sure that we're honoring the requests and the acknowledgments that the Black Lives Matter movement has been asking of roller derby as uh, the movement is asking of every single organization and specifically in sports. So we do feel like there is time for us to be able to work on ourselves in the interim and the leagues, the clubs that are able to get back on track we will support, we will be excited about. And it's okay if maybe roller derby doesn't look the way it did in 2019 because maybe we can make it look even better. As we heard from Zach Binney, your plan, your reopening plan is one of the safest plans that's been proposed in team sports. So who came up with this plan? Well, the WFTDA board and staff reached out to the community and a group of epidemiologists, frontline workers, medical professionals who are part of the sport, who are skaters and officials, stepped forward and volunteered to help. We have two epidemiologists and an infection control nurse, a licensed paramedic, and two MDs who are the core of our medical team. All right. So it was actually the athletes themselves and the officials, like people who actually participate in the game itself, who came up with this plan. And they also have the expertise to do it. Yes, 100 percent. Erica, why do you think roller derby of all sports came up with a plan that an epidemiologist can sign off on? You know, the NBA has tons of money. So does baseball, obviously. Why you guys? Why roller derby? We just view sport differently. We're a democratic organization, and I think we are both the Players Association and the league. And quite frankly, watching the Players Associations and the leagues duke it out over the last couple of months tells me that we're on the right track. We are here to be managed by, directed by um, our athletes, our officials, and our community members, and not a lot of sports function that way. So in in many ways, our guidelines for COVID are different because they're coming from a completely different set of values. So that's Erica's take. But, you know, sometimes it helps to hear from an outsider, too. So I asked Zach Binney why he thinks the plan that Roller Derby came up with is such a winner. This was not written with money in mind or with we have to get the season back or our advertisers and sponsors and television networks in mind. This was written with medicine and public health in mind. And so this is the sort of plan that you get when those are the people writing it and who are listened to. You have the best of both worlds. You have athletes who are also scientists and experts in disease who also happen to be experts in their sport. Absolutely. And who love their sport, by the way. These are not people who are eager 
for roller derby to not come back for a year or whatever, right? They want it back, but they want it back safely. And I think that's the that's the really key attitude and why their plan and ended up so solid. Zach, were you at all surprised when you learned that roller derby had a super robust plan? Like, did were you expecting that? No, but I probably should have been. I mean, <laughs> I mean, honestly, if 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 nothing else, uh, I, I'm not saying this to pander. I swear, if an organization were going to come up with a plan this good, it would be an organization of women and led primarily by women, not men. You, if you just look at the, uh, you know, at the leagues where the men are in charge and the leagues where the women are in charge, I, I think the women's leagues have been generally more cautious. The uh, NWSL, National Women's Soccer League, and the WNBA have both uh, gone in bubble plans. The WNBA partly, you know, drawn along by by the NBA, but still, you know, so you've seen more caution there. You know, also it's a sport that's not especially revenue driven, certainly not to the degree that say the big four football, basketball, hockey, and, and baseball here in the U S are. So it seems weird that it came from this small sport at first, but on the other hand, it really shouldn't be that weird. So I will never underestimate roller derby again, and I will be getting season tickets as soon as the Atlanta roller girls are able to come back. I assure you of that. That's it for today's show. Now, I've got a message for everybody about Reset. Next Friday's episode will be our last show. Last year, Vox.com gave me an amazing opportunity to create this show with an incredibly talented team, and I am extremely proud of the work we've done here. That said, I am moving on from Vox. I can't say too much about that just yet, but follow me on Twitter at ADRS for what comes next. Now, we're not saying goodbye just yet because the Reset team still has work to do in the coming days. But I wanted to tell you, the loyal Reset audience, about the end of the show because I personally feel like it's helpful to have time to process this kind of information. Now, even though Reset is ending, don't unsubscribe from this feed. There's more coming. All right, that's the news. Now for the credits. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Duemros, but you don't have to say it that way. If you like what you heard over the last few months, now's probably the time to finally go into Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. And maybe leave me a fun note in the review. I'm going to miss y'all. Will Reed and Skylar Swenson produced the show. Amy Drozdowska is our editor. Our audio engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week. Later, nerds. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.